Dear friends, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and that makes this the third sermon in our series from Matthew's Gospel. Last week, we considered the end of chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel, in which Jesus was born of Mary and named by Joseph, making him a son of David. Now, as chapter 2 opens, the narrative time frame has jumped ahead upwards of perhaps two years. The babe is now a little child. But in Matthew's Gospel, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2 offer us the first glimpse of how it is that different people will respond to Jesus. And it can be difficult for us to recognize the significance of this, I think, because year after year after year, we remember at Christmas time all that Luke's gospel has to say about the birth of Jesus. And there in Luke's gospel, of course, there's lots of response right away. The angels fill the sky. The startled but delighted shepherds go with haste to see the newborn babe lying in the manger. And then when Mary and Joseph bring their baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, not long after, righteous Simeon and Anna rejoice in thanksgiving and blessing. But in Matthew's gospel, we get none of that. In Matthew, the first to respond to the birth of Jesus aren't Jews. They're Gentiles. Wise men from the East, Matthew calls them. And as much as we can, we want to be in this series reading the Gospel of Matthew on its own terms. And just as the responses that we read about in Luke's Gospel don't appear in Matthew, this remarkable section of you want to switch to this? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, thank you. Just as the responses we read about in Luke's gospel don't appear in Matthew, this remarkable section of Matthew's gospel doesn't appear in Luke or anywhere else in the New Testament. So what does Matthew want us to see here? Why does he opt to tell the story this way? These will be the questions that are driving our consideration of verses 1 to 12 this morning as we consider our own response to Jesus. Now, structurally, there's just one narrative thread that's running all through these 12 verses, first 12 verses of Matthew 2. It's all about the wise men seeking and finding and worshiping Jesus. But that's not the only response we get to Jesus in this passage. In fact, I think we see four responses to Jesus in this text. Before he comes to any of those, Matthew sets the scene for us in verses 1 and 2. So we need first to look at that in some detail and sort of explain what's happening here. But then in verses 3 to 12, it's all about responding to Jesus. We read there about the anger of Herod, the anxiety of the people, the apathy of the religious leaders. That's how various individuals in Jerusalem here are responding to Jesus, with anger, with anxiety, and with apathy, all of which then sets up the contrast, which, of course, is seen in the 
adoration of the wise men. So it's anger and anxiety and apathy followed by adoration. And of course, the challenge for us in the end is to ask how it is that we respond to Jesus. But before we look at those various responses, let's follow Matthew as he takes some time here to set the scene for us in verses 1 and 2. Matthew writes, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there had been no mention of the place where Jesus was born in chapter 1 of Matthew. don't know if you realize that. But then straight away in chapter 2, Matthew states it. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, in the Old Testament, Bethlehem appears a couple times early on as the place near where Jacob buries Rachel in Genesis chapter 35, verse 19. It's mentioned again as the place where Ruth meets Boaz in Ruth chapter 2. But above all, of course, Bethlehem in the Old Testament is known as the hometown of David. You remember 1 Samuel 16? Any of you who have been around through the Samuel series? 1 Samuel 16 verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And though Jerusalem would become the capital city and the place where David would reign as king, it's Bethlehem where the son of David, who would be king of the Jews, was to be born. That's who Jesus was, of course, as chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel made clear, and we looked at that over the last couple of weeks. But in addition to stating the place where Jesus was born, Matthew 2 verse 1 also gives us a temporal reference. Matthew says, Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. That is to say, in the days of Herod the Great, as he's called now. He was the one who, at the time, was called King of the Jews, but he was, of course, installed by the Romans. The Roman Empire had ruled in Palestine since the year 63 BC, when the general Pompey had advanced on Jerusalem, captured the city as well as the rest of Palestine, and then across the vast Roman Empire, and here in Palestine as well, it was often the case that local figures were installed to rule under the Roman emperor. So that the Herod here mentioned in Matthew 2, we know he was born in 73 BC. He gained political prominence in Palestine and was named King of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. And by 37 BC, Herod had crushed all opposition to his rule with the help of Roman forces, and he would go on to rule under Rome until the year 4 BC, when he most likely died in March of the year 4 BC. Which is important for the dating of Jesus' birth, actually. 
because we know here that Herod's still alive when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem. And we know that that's as much as two years after Jesus was born. Maybe not a full two years, but could be up to that point. So that most scholars place the dating of Jesus' birth at between 6 and 4 B.C. Now, the thing to understand about Herod is that he was the son of his father Antipater, who was an Idumean, or in Old Testament terms, an Edomite. That meant that while from the Roman point of view, Herod was in effect a Jew, his father's family had in some way embraced the Jewish faith, the Jews themselves never accepted Herod as one of their own. The Jewish historian Josephus records an objection to Herod's being made king on the ground that, as an Edomian or an Edomite, he was only a half-Jew. In other words, Herod is the Roman-appointed king who has no ancestral right to the throne. But he was wealthy, he was politically gifted, he was intensely loyal, he was an excellent administrator, and he was clever enough to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. Herod's building projects, which included the temple in Jerusalem that began in, the building began in 20 BC, his building projects were admired far beyond the, the boundaries of, of Palestine, even by his foes. But Herod loved power. He inflicted incredibly heavy taxes on the people, and he resented the fact that many Jews considered him a usurper. He became paranoid regarding possible threats to his position in his last years, and in fits of rage and jealousy, Herod killed off some of his close associates, his wife Mariamne, and at least two of his sons. He had something like 10 different wives, but that was one of them. That's Herod the Great, ruler in Palestine when Jesus was born. Well, next, we need to take some time to discuss the wise men. The Greek word translated here, wise men, in the ESV is the word magoi, or magi, as we usually say it. The singular is magos. Magos was originally the title of a Persian priestly caste who played an important role in advising the king. But the term came to be applied more widely to learned men and priests who specialized in astrology and in the interpretation of dreams and in some cases magical arts. And magi could be found in different places around the Roman world, but they were especially associated with Babylonia. So, though it's true that as early as the 3rd century AD, the magi here in Matthew's account were thought of as kings and considered kings, and we still sing about them as kings, they almost certainly were not that. They were probably more along the lines of religious advisors to the royal court in their home country. And there almost certainly weren't three of them, despite the name of the Christmas carol. There were 
three gifts presented to Jesus, according to verse 11, but no indication that that's exactly how many magi there were. We have no idea how many there were. And at any rate, they likely had traveled with a much larger number of attendants and guards for the long journey to Jerusalem, and it would have been a very long journey. Because if the Magi came from the environs of Babylon, which seems to be the general consensus, it means they would have traveled approximately 900 miles to get to the holy city using the typical trade routes to get there. And in those days, a journey like that by camel, including the arrangements that would have been required and the gathering of a traveling party before they even set out after they had seen the star, it would have taken several months before they arrived in Jerusalem. And one more point to make here, and it's important. It seems safe to assume that these magi would have been exposed to Old Testament prophecies, some of them anyway, probably from Jewish colonies situated in the East. Because remember that it was to Babylon that the people of Judah had been exiled. And while many Jews returned to Palestine after the exile, many others remained in the east and especially in Babylon. As a result, we know that pagan leaders, both political and religious leaders, were well aware of Jewish religious distinctives. And there were significant Jewish centers of learning in Babylon at the time. So it seems likely that these magi who came to Jerusalem spurred on by astrological calculations had probably also built up their expectation of a kingly figure. As they worked through assorted Jewish books, all of which had been influenced in some way or other by the prophetic content of the Old Testament. As one commentator says, Israel's prophets had long spoken of a period of world peace and prosperity that would be instituted by a future Davidic deliverer. This belief had penetrated beyond the border of Israel so that others were looking for a ruler to arise from the land of Judea. Which leaves us then with one item still to cover by way of setting the scene here, and I know this is rather extensive what I'm doing, and that's of course the star. The Magi announce of this king whom they seek, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, among other texts, it's possible that through the Jewish community in their homeland, the Magi had become familiar with Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, excuse me, which was Balaam's prophecy, which says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Perhaps that's one of the texts they have in view. In many quarters within Judaism, that prophecy was understood to point to a messianic deliverer. And we pick up on it even in a place like Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, where Jesus refers to himself as the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So it was his star they claimed to have seen, the star of the born king of the Jews, and they've come to worship him. Only, let me at least pose the question, what exactly did the Magi see? The most honest answer is that no one really knows. 
The word that's translated star here could suggest a variety of things. In fact, one article I read puts it this way. The author says this word can connote a number of luminous astronomical phenomena. <laughs> so naturally, you can imagine there's a variety of views concerning what this luminous astronomical phenomena really was. Some try to argue it was a natural phenomenon that can be traced back to some known astronomical event like a comet or a supernova or the conjunction of planets, and you can read whole books about those theories. Others, however, suggest it was a supernatural phenomenon that God used to herald Jesus' birth, since, after all, the star seems to appear and then reappear and then move and direct the Magi to the precise house, even, that Jesus and his family occupied. Well, for my money, I'm inclined to go with the supernatural explanation. And in fact, though you might think it's crazy, I'm currently of the opinion that the star may have been an angel which is a minority view to be sure, but there are some scholars who suggest that the supernatural phenomenon here was actually an angel sent to the Magi to announce in ways they would recognize the birth of Messiah and guide them to Jesus so that they would be a witness to his birth through their worship. I mean, at a few points in scripture, angels are referred to as stars. And in Exodus 14, verse 19, it was the angel of God who led and guided Israel through the land after the Exodus. And maybe it's significant that angels often did appear in extra-biblical Jewish and Christian literature as guides. And the angel of the Lord does play a prominent role in the events of Matthew 1 and 2, as we saw last week and as we'll see again next week. But nothing in the verses say anything about an angel, so maybe it was or maybe it wasn't. The point is, I think God caused there to be something visible which the Magi called a star. And that somehow with their mixture of influences from paganism and astrology and the Jewish scriptures, they get it. They know that a long-awaited king has been born, and they set off towards Jerusalem. And when Matthew 2 opens, of course, now they've made it there. They've arrived. They've come these 900 miles to the capital city where David once ruled as king. And, of course, where do they go? Well, they go to the palace. They go to where the king would be. And who do they meet? Herod. And now we've gone through all that background so that we can better understand and quite quickly now look at the various responses that people have to all this. We start in verse 3, where Matthew says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Which to our ears sounds like a kind of mild reaction, but I doubt it was mild. I think Herod was enraged angry. Oh, he's playing the part. He even had the wise men fooled, it seems. But we know where this is heading. We know what Herod's murderous intentions are. 
as he works to find out where and when this king of the Jews was born. Because he's the king of the Jews, you see. And he's intent on eliminating any rival claimants to the throne to determine where, verse 4 says, Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people to inquire the Christ was to be born. Talk about them in a minute. For the when, verse 7 says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Only it was all ruthless stealth and cunning deceit, and Herod wanted this king of the Jews dead. And indeed, when in next week's passage he learns that the wise men didn't return, Matthew says he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. As one commentator puts it, Herod hopes to save himself and his imagined supremacy by slaying the true king. He epitomizes humanity's desire for self-determination and Satan's hatred of God and his work. Herod represents all who are hostile to God. That's the first failed response to Jesus, the anger of Herod. But there are two more. Though Matthew barely mentions it, Note the end of verse 3. What are we to make of the fact that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod, as verse 3 puts it? I, I don't think it means that the people of Jerusalem were sympathetic towards Herod, or that they would have been sorry to see him replaced, or that they were reluctant to see the coming of the messianic king necessarily. There seems to have been little love lost between Herod and his subjects generally by this time from what we can tell. Rather, I think the people of Jerusalem were troubled with him because they knew that when Herod was troubled or angry, it was time for everyone else to be troubled as well. I think the people of Jerusalem were anxious. Anxious about what Herod might do, what a potential dynastic revolution might entail Perhaps they had some interest in Jesus, but wondered if really ultimately he might just somehow cause them trouble. And they didn't want that, so they followed Herod instead. It's true, of course, that Jesus sometimes arouses hostility and resentment or upheaval and suffering, especially when he threatens power structures. We can understand the reaction of the people, but we can't lionize it. We can't live by this kind of fear. Fear must not govern how we respond to Jesus. Some of the people of Jerusalem were surely awaiting a deliverer, and the Magi's arrival seemed to fit the prophecies. They shouldn't have been indifferent, but they were. And the fear we may face in connection with Jesus is perhaps different in our days, but whether they're fears of disapproval or financial loss or relational strife or something else in our lives, the point is those things can't govern how we respond to Jesus. So we have the people's anxiety. Then moving on, it's hard not to be even tougher on the chief priests and the scribes. 
mentioned first in verse 4, and it's their apathy that's in view now. Chief priests refers to the current high priest, all of those who had formerly been high priest, and a substantial number of other leading priests. The scribes were experts in the Old Testament and in that oral tradition of the Old Testament. Their work wasn't so much to copy out manuscripts, as the English word scribe may suggest, as it was teaching the Old Testament. Not that Herod would have been in the habit of consulting either of these groups. According to Josephus, Herod began his reign with a massacre of the members of the Sanhedrin and kept their influence intentionally to a bare minimum. But Herod's a politician with only limited Jewish background, and he needs to know what they know about where the Messiah was to be born. And so it says, told him. They answered Herod about the birth of the one whom they should have recognized as their true king. Verse 5 says, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They go right to the reference that's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 there. And they even, get this, they even add the part about shepherding the people. That's language from 2 Samuel 5, verse 2 which is a text about God's call to David. In other words, they're 100% right, which only makes their complete indifference to the birth of the Messiah all the more incredible, does it not? Because they have this expert knowledge, which they present then to Herod the Great, and they don't even use that knowledge to direct themselves. Here they are confirming Jesus' messianic credentials by providing the scriptural confirmation that the Messiah, who will embody David's own calling, is to be born in Bethlehem only to then, that is, the, the, these religious leaders, only to then disappear from this narrative completely. We hear no more about them. Their mastery of the scriptures did not evidently lead them to obedience. They do nothing they don't rejoice, they don't join the Magi, they don't go the six miles to Bethlehem to worship this shepherd and ruler, or even to investigate. And they should have, don't you think? They know the faith and do nothing, while the Magi, outsiders with limited scriptural knowledge that they then mixed with the unholy science of astrology are the first to learn of and search for the born king. Which brings us then finally, and as we close to the example of the Magi's adoration, which really is the point. It was signaled for us right up front at the end of verse 2. They know why they've come to find Jesus. They've come to worship him. And that's what they do. Pick it up in verse 9. After listening to the king, Matthew says, they went on their way, and behold, the star, or maybe it's an angel, unless you think that's crazy, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And then get this, 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, how's that for a contrast to what we just read about Herod and the people and the religious leaders, right? I mean, by that point, by this point, that star was guiding them. And when they saw it again, their hearts swelled and going into the house, because it's a house here. Joseph and Mary and Jesus are now in some kind of family home dwelling going into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And yes, I get that these quasi-pagan religious figures were not in this moment worshipping Jesus in the full knowledge that he was God incarnate. They were not knowingly worshiping Jesus as the God-man, though the language here can be used that way in other contexts. The language can also be used of paying homage to a human king, and that's what I think they were doing. But even that's quite remarkable in and of itself, is it not? Because here we have foreign dignitaries prostrating themselves in homage before a child in an ordinary house in Bethlehem. Their extravagant gift-giving only heightens our amazement at all of this. And though in the history of the interpretation of this text, a lot of symbolic significance is attached to the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, the point to me seems to be a more basic one. These are luxurious gifts fit for a king. When approaching royalty or persons of high religious or political or social status, gifts were often brought to demonstrate obeisance. And I think these gifts indicate the esteem with which the Magi revere the child. They represent giving him the honor due him as they see it as king of the Jews. And what I would say is that their worship is probably far more than even they understand. If time allowed, we could look back at Old Testament passages like 1 Kings 10, where leaders of Gentile nations come and present gifts to the king of Israel. We could look at other passages that then look ahead prophetically to the nations coming to honor the coming Messiah, such as Psalm 72 or Isaiah 60. You see, the Magi step right into this clear biblical expectation perhaps unknowingly, as they bow down to Jesus and present their gifts. But even more than that, for readers of Matthew's gospel who've just learned about the virginal conception of Jesus, we see even more in the actions of the Magi, don't we? Their actions point to a deeper tribute than even they knew. On the bigger bigger scale here, it's significant, I think, that Matthew's story begins with Gentiles coming to pay homage to a king and ends with the disciples worshiping the resurrected Jesus on the mountain. And along the way in Matthew's gospel, a leper and a ruler and the disciples and a Canaanite woman and the mother of James and John and an anonymous woman and the women at the tomb all worship him. Matthew's gospel will reveal that Jesus isn't only worthy of reverence as a king, he's due the same adoration that previously was reserved only for God.
question is, what will be our response to Jesus, dear friends? Will it be anger, anxiety, apathy, or will it be adoration? Let's let the Magi show us the way. They know far less, but they act on what they know, as disciples should. They sacrifice time and treasure and safety to find the king and to offer him the best gifts they have. They worship him. May it be so for all of us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.